Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. is my passion. I'm an ultramarathon runner, yoga fan, educator, breathwork enthusiast, and now a new dad to my beautiful baby boy, which is the most demanding activity yet. As a coach and athlete, I've met some of the most incredible people. Now, I want to share their insight, experience, and life up till now with you. In this episode, Michael James Wong shares with us his skill for creating a wide-reaching community why fast-tracking wisdom into everyday life should be a fundamental role of every teacher, and the reason he brings people together to do nothing. So, without further ado, let's welcome Michael. much for joining it's fantastic to have you here how are you doing today and as always uh, such a nice time to have a little bit more time than usual to, to hang out chat and catch up so you are originally from the states we'd love to know kind of how you began what your your health fitness and wellness was like when you were younger you know were you into sport was there anything that kind of motivated you to stay healthy and fit yeah so i mean i was actually born in new zealand but i grew up in santa monica um from about the age of four uh, you know growing up there it was very much maybe as you would think a lot of sun a lot of beach uh, a lot of kind of uh, priority on well-being, you know. You know, even back then, uh, I grew up playing sports like like probably most people did. I uh, played football, played basketball. Um, you know, I tried my hand at lots of uh, lots of things. You know, my family was very outdoors oriented. My dad was such um, an advocate for getting outside. We used to go hiking, canoeing. We used to go to the ocean. We used to go camping. All kinds of things. Um, and so I think a lot of my um, passion and a lot of my connection to well-being, call it fitness or exercise or sport or whatever you want to call it, um, came from our family being a very active family, um, whether it was summer or winter. You know, we would also ski a lot in, in the wintertime or snowboard. You know, we would try everything. And, you know, while we, while I ended up being, let's say, better at other things uh, than, than other things, um, you know, we were always encouraged to try and to see what it was like just to go play. And, um, you know, my parents were always big advocates of not needing to win. It was just about go have fun and see what it's like. I mean, that sounds like an idyllic childhood out in the sun, just playing, spending time outdoors. Now on that, and, and you mentioned your, your dad there, um, who, who would you say your guiding people were? Who motivated you? Who kind of helped you or guided you through your youth f with regards to 
the health, the fitness, the sports? I mean, that, that person was always uh, my dad, who was very much about ensuring that uh, sport and exercise and walking and nature was always part of you know, the life and the lifestyle. Um, we didn't really grow up with video games. We didn't really grow up with, you know, uh, mobile phones and those type of things. Again, you know, I, I grew up in the era when there was no mobile phones. And so, you know, there was go play outside, go figure it out, go have fun. But also I was lucky enough to um, grow up with an older brother who was only two years older than me and a younger sister who's four years younger than me. And so relatively, we always had someone to play with. And, you know, I kind of followed in the footsteps of my brother. And if he played football, I played football. If he played volleyball, I played volleyball. If he went camping, we all went camping. Um, and, and, you know, quite naturally, probably as a parent, you know, it's probably more economic to take all of your kids camping than one at a time. Um, and so we ended up doing a lot of family activities uh, together, which really advocated this, this, this lifestyle of well-being. At the same time, my mom was um, a dietitian, so food was a big focus in our family. Um, but good food, not just healthy food, but good food tasty food, ensuring things were enjoyed, moments were celebrated. So there was a really nice balance between the two. And so they were always kind of the guiding light for my life and for our family. And at the same time, um, you know, people always talk about, you know, they have coaches when they're young or they have teachers when they're young. Um, my dad was always the coach. He was always the football coach. He was always the, you know, the camp leader, you know, who's very active in those environments. Um, so I was lucky enough to have dad and coach all packaged into one, which I can say that in hindsight as, as a joy and a benefit, but obviously sometimes when you're 12 years old, having your dad as the coach is not necessarily the benefit, but <laughs> looking back now, it, it was definitely um, a gift in growing up. Cool. That, that's so great to hear that you had a tight family unit and that you grew up interacting with your siblings and, and your family in, in such a healthy way. You mentioned something earlier on that, that I'm, I'm very interested in, and it's very prominent to see parents, especially fathers, um, but it can be mothers and fathers these days, being very um, insistent on level of sporting ability, level of sporting achievement. And you mentioned that there wasn't really any focus. And I'm sure there, there was probably some underlying guidance towards goals, but there wasn't any main focus on achieving spectacularly in sport. How, how would you say that's affected you kind of into your, into your adolescence and, and into your working life now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, culture oftentimes is built around winning. Uh, sport included. Uh, and, and I think whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, uh, my parents were very, you know, they were very much advocates of participation, as opposed to uh, dominance or winning. I think, you know, quite naturally, we're all given that anyway, by being on a team sport by being in schools, you know, like it or not, you're going to be inundated with someone in your life telling you, you need to be better, you need to win, you need to get to the top, you know, it's a cultural thing. And, and so I think in our household, um, we had, um, we were required to participate, we weren't required to win, right? We, in our house, you had to play a sport, you had to play an instrument, a musical instrument, uh, and you had to have extracurricular activities, whether that was volunteering, charity, college preparation courses, you had to participate in things that gave you an experience, but you didn't have to be good at it, you just had to try it. And I think that has really 
served me well uh, because, you know, you play on a team sport. You know, and I said you had to play a sport. You had to play a team sport as well, which is important because I think that's when you learn camaraderie, teamwork. That's when you learn how to to win gracefully and to lose gracefully right and you learn about ego you learn about challenge you learn about defeat you learn about celebration and i mean i i think that's translated really well for me where you know yeah there's lots of times in my life where i've enjoyed winning a game or uh, coming first in a race not that i came first in many races but you had this sense of you participated in something that challenged you that pushed you that gave you a new experience and all those things become little incremental things that add value to your life, little seeds that plant that you might not realize. I didn't realize for 10, 20, 30 years that, oh, I do know how to work in a team, right? So when I got a first job and I was in a team, right? No one has a job where they're working by themselves a lot of the times. And, oh, I do know how to share. I do know how to pass the ball, you know, metaphorically speaking. I do know how to let someone else lead. I do know how to um, pick myself up when things don't go well. And so, you know, in, in my life, that that has really translated into a really valuable skill set to to try and to have lots of experiences to participate, but not needing it always to be about winning success or trying to achieve. Because oftentimes, what that does, it just sets you up for um, failure, sets you up for a greater defeat when you're all when you're too focused on a certain outcome as opposed to the experience that's happening. That's really insightful viewpoint on on how to participate and utilize the skills in the way that you can apply them in different aspects of your life rather than just solely for the experience that you learned them from. Linking back to, to yoga now, now you've you've been practicing yoga for a long time now. You've built up a a, a good repertoire of skills, of abilities and of a community how did you how did you get into yoga why why yoga in the first place really yeah i've been in the i've been practicing yoga for about 20 years now give or take um and, and i found it or i found my way into the practice uh unintentionally uh, i first started yoga in la and and granted to be fair i had a lot more opportunity than most people you know back in the um Back in the early 2000s, it was more prevalent in LA than anywhere else in a Western culture, um, or one of. And what was interesting about it, it was it was something that was always there, but never on the radar. Uh, and this is kind of in college, university time for me. You know, again, I was playing sport. I was happily doing extracurricular activities. I was always outside. But, you know, yoga tends to be something, especially back then, you didn't really grow up doing. No one really was doing yoga when they were 12 years old. Now they are, which is great. But back then, it was really kind of an afterthought or a later activity. I found my way into a first class because I was with uh, some friends who just challenged me and said, hey, why don't you come try this yoga class? You know, and I was 19 at the time, 20, I forget. And it was a bit like, well, that seems pretty easy and arguably a waste of time. You know, what am I going to do? Just roll around and stretch my arms for an hour and, 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 you know, pay 20 quid and could do that myself. Right. And so you walk in with these expectations. And I think I remember them saying, uh, you know, let's just see if you can make it through one. And I think my adolescent ego was like, yeah, fine, let's see. And I, and I think they set me up a bit where they kind of took me to arguably a strong class, a power yoga class. And, you know, I, 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 for lack of a better 
example, got my ass whooped, right? I kind of got a practice that was so strong that kind of knocked me sideways a bit. And obviously the physical part of it was the instant gratification, but from that came so much more, right? Uh, I remember that I, when we went that first day, uh, you know, I, I was, I was frugal in my approach. And, you know, a lot of times when you go to a studio or a gym and they go sign up for one class, it's 20 quid or sign up for two weeks and it's 30 quid and you come as many times as you want. Right. And so I think my eyes, my eyes and my brain said, okay, well, I'll take the deal because if I just come once more, then it'll be worth it. I get a half price. But then also I remember paying for it and then walking into the studio going, well, I probably just wasted 10 pounds because I'm not going to come back again. After that first class, after that first feeling of the physical effort, the kind of that kind of snap where it was just about being present, about breathing, about just learning my own boundaries and parameters. Uh, that was, you know, let's say like a 10 a.m. class. I came back that afternoon and did a second one. I did two classes in the first day. And then I went every single day for the next two weeks until the pass ran out because it was it was like this world I had never explored before. You know, being in LA, everything was fast paced. Everything was busy. Everyone was cool. There was a lot of ego in every room. Everyone was trying to be something or go somewhere. And you walk into a yoga space and into a studio, all of that fades away. Right? The teacher doesn't care what you do for work or where you go to school. They don't care who your parents are or what you drive. They just say, lie there, be still, see what it's like to stay in this pose. What emotions come up here? How frustrated are you in this chair pose or in this plank pose? How much space is there in your hips? You know, things that arguably your ego can't talk you out of. And so for me, it was relatively mind-blowing because it was something I'd never experienced to that point in my life. And I think after those first few weeks, it had really shifted something within me to make me feel that there's a lot of value in this single room, in this practice that I would just not experienced before. And it was kind of like tasting ice cream for the first time, right? It was, this is just so different. I want it. I need more. And I want to just explore. It's so lovely when you have that connection and, and to, to reiterate that phrase you you just said it tastes like ice cream for the first time you know that that sensation of i'm in the right place at the right time you know regardless of how difficult how challenging those aspects of the practice are you are willing to to make the effort because you you're, you're chasing that kind of that sensation of this is right i i feel good here yeah, I mean, and and to take that a bit further, I mean, and, and some people might laugh or chuckle and go, oh, ice cream's not challenging. But the reality is, you know, it is if you're two years old, right? <laughs> it's cold. It's a lot. You got the spoon you're dealing with, right? And so that childhood challenge of tasting ice cream for the first time actually works tenfold when you use this as maybe the metaphor of my experience coming into the practice. Amazing. Amazing. So working from there, what... Where was that transition from being a participant practicing yoga to moving into teaching and guiding people through their practice and now into helping other yogis and people who are on their journey to teach? How, how have you kind of moved into that role? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts like many things start from a place of passion, a place of enjoyment, 
you know, and whether it is, you know, yoga for me or running for you or writing for someone else or dancing for someone else, once you get the first taste of it and it shifts something within you, you just start doing it a lot more, right? You, you go to classes, you get this feeling of value, you have experiences that are meaningful, you meet people that have like-mindedness. You meet people who want to talk about yoga. You, you learn things that are so interesting that you just continually stay within that headspace. And what's really interesting about that is I found myself, which a lot of people would find themselves, talking about it to people who don't do yoga, to the strangers on the bus, you know, walking down the road, meeting up with a friend. And I go, oh, they go, what'd you do today? Oh, I went to yoga. And they go, oh, that's a bit interesting. And I go, no, but it's like this. And it's like this. And you feel like this. And it's wonderful. And my friend, my other friend here, we catch up and do this. And it becomes all consuming in, in perhaps a, a beneficial way, in a positive way. And so for me at that point, when something becomes passionate, uh, and then it becomes something that we want to share, right? I'd look around the room to my friends and go, well, you're complaining about having, you know, a sore lower back, come to yoga, right? Oh, you're complaining about things being just too stressed, come to yoga. You know, I, I found myself being passionately purposeful about advocating towards it. And so obviously the diligent next step is to learn more, to commit to a study, commit to uh, diving in, you know, because I think uh, that's the stage in which we really see kind of, is it something that is long-term meaningful, right? And so, you know, it wasn't just like I jumped into a teacher training. I just did lots more classes, but with a different mindset. I'm here to learn. I'm not just here to have fun or have an experience. And then over the years, obviously, you know, a lot of my friends who used to be high school and college friends turned into yoga friends. And the people that you end up hanging with are all people who go to yoga and you have a few that are yoga teachers or meditation teachers. And so there was a natural next step into doing a training because with all teacher trainings, what tends to happen, it's not about doing a training to learn to be a teacher in the first stage of any teacher training. And this happens with a lot of disciplines isn't to learn how to teach. It's just to learn more about the practice. Right. And so if I, in those first kind of few weeks and months of a training, the same way as we do our trainings here, it's how much can you sponge up? How much can you learn, right? There's only so much information you can understand in a 60-minute class in an open public studio on Tuesday at lunchtime. There's no depth. There's no um, two-way conversation, right? Yoga is unique where it's often a one-way conversation and a one-way experience, right? The teacher's talking and the student's doing or practicing. And so there's no chance to go, what do you mean by that? Or tell me about that. Or you said that, tell me more or you just don't even know the questions to ask to get to the next phase of depth. So a teacher training gives that sensibility to really uh, sponge more up and to uh, acquire more knowledge and wisdom. And then you learn tools, tools and skills, right? How do you use a knife and fork? Well, you go like this. How do you boil an egg? Well, you do this and you put the egg in and you wait. How do you teach this yoga pose? Well, this needs to happen and this needs to happen. This thigh rotates out and this spine lengthens here and these hands do this and the shoulders do this, right? You learn techniques that allow you to understand the way in which you can communicate the practice, guide other people with a certain amount of awareness and intellect and consideration. And then that kind of launches you into the place of now I have a passion, now I feel a purpose, and now I have the capacity right? Skills and tools, the capacity in which to be 
a teacher, to serve, to, to help, to support. So that was my progression through it. And, you know, over the course of, you know, those early years, it was practice a lot, do a teacher training, teach a little bit, teach a lot, keep practicing. And it's like anything, you know, what can defeat you early on is trying to be really good at stuff. And you just get out there and try, teach some things. People say they hated class. People say they loved class, but it doesn't deter the fact that I was passionate about what I was doing. And I wanted to do my part to support, to serve, and, and to help people uh, find the feeling that I felt when I first started. Very cool. And, and very interesting how you phrase that. It's, it's about not just doing, but learning as well. And, and again, you know, if, if I can relate it to, to running, it's not all about how much you run. And, and running is important and doing, doing as much training as you can is important. But it's also about the little nuances, the things that you learn from the experience. Why do you get injured? You can either find out what's causing it, deal with it, fix it and continue, or you could just cover it up and keep doing what you're doing. Both work in different ways and the, the results are going to be different. And the same thing as you just mentioned, you know, you can be in a yoga class for years and years and years and that's fine. And, and for most people out there, going to a yoga class and, and having that one way conversation is, is absolutely fine. But if you're going to move into that teaching and guiding, there needs to be more development, more learning. And as you said, you know, beginning of a two way conversation, asking questions, realizing that what you've learned in class so far is only the tip of the iceberg and it goes so much deeper and there's so much more interesting information out there. Just need to find the people that have that information for you at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's like anytime you visit a new city, right? You can always land in and just wander around and you'll have a great experience. You'll see things, you'll stumble upon nice restaurants and wonderful views. But if you take the time to get a tour guide or meet up with a local or someone who can actually navigate the landscape, you know, in a really meaningful way, all that's really going to do is going to amplify your personal experience, but then allow you to kind of return home knowing a bit more, understanding a bit more, and being able to share that with other people. So true, and, and I, I love that analogy. It, it works absolutely perfectly for this. And that moves us smoothly onto what, you're, what you've got going at the moment. You have a whole bunch of projects. You always have a whole bunch of projects. What, what are you focusing on at the moment? So all the, all the projects that, that I work on or our team works on are actually all very single-minded. They're all about building and celebrating community. How do we do that in a way that makes more people feel welcome, give more people a sense of belonging, and help people realize that we're all in this together and we can all support in different ways? That being said, we pull it apart in, in, in different conversations. We have our yoga um, projects, which are built around um, uh, teaching so how do we help people dive into those um, deeper learnings through 200-hour teacher trainings, which is the foundations of yoga? So that first course you would take into learning more about yoga and then uh, becoming qualified to teach. And then also focuses on our advanced training or our deep dive trainings, which allow teachers to really unpick more what happens after those first few 
um, trainings where you kind of sponge up the knowledge, then it's what do you do next, right? And so in the yoga space for me, it's, it's about, you know, supporting the community of teachers. But at the same time, we also have a project called Boys of Yoga, which is really about celebrating the conversation of making the practice more accessible, welcoming uh, for men you know, and from all disciplines, all works of life, to see themselves in the practice and to realize that it's an integrative practice that can really support their well-being. All of these things work together in the yoga community, both here in the UK, where I'm based now, as well as the global community. And so I, I take a very active role in um, traveling, obviously when appropriate, within reason, uh, connecting with all the, the, the key communities, uh, around the world, whether it be Los Angeles, New York, um, Berlin, you know, Stockholm, Melbourne, all these places where yoga is a very prominent cultural fixture and ensuring there's a lot of connection between those teachers, those studios, as well as into, you know, other smaller kind of demographics locations, the, the Sofia Bulgaria, the Reykjavik Iceland's, the places where there is community, but they, they're a bit more insular. How do we make it part of a global conversation? Because amplifying uh, a conversation of yoga on a global scale inevitably helps to impact its value into uh, our general culture. So that's really what we focus on in the yoga space. And then on the other half of it, we have our, our conversation in mindfulness and meditation. How do we make that more accessible? How do we uh, allow people to really take care of themselves, of their mental health, their well-being, give them tools and techniques to support that? And that's led by uh, a few things. One is our Just Breathe Meditation app which is an app you can download, which is on your phone, in your pocket, that has hundreds of guided meditations, breath work, music meditations, uh, stress and anxiety practices, short stories, sleep sounds, lots of things that actually does the heavy lifting for you when you need a moment of reprieve. Uh, and that couples with our, uh, our live events, uh, which will come back soon when appropriate, which we've done over the years, which how do you bring a community together to celebrate doing nothing? right? How do you come together to do nothing, right? This is actually one of the hardest things we need to do right now is how do we come together to do nothing? And so through Just Breathe, we advocate these big moments, these big mass meditations of stillness. You know, we've brought hundreds and thousands of people together in iconic places all over the country, all over the world to do very little, to have simple conversations like you and I are having, to sit in meditation, to listen to someone talk, to hear music play, to watch a dance or dance, all underpinned by the idea that we're here to do very little or not much, make meaningful connections with other human beings, strangers or friends, and step into a space where it's not about what we do, but who we are. And so this is kind of the, the narrative of the focuses of both our yoga projects, Sunday School Yoga and Boys of Yoga, as well as our meditation-based projects, which is Just Breathe, and all of that weaves together. And then when you um, pull the lens out a bit further, um, I do a lot of personal work with writing uh, and, and the books that I write. I've just released a new book called Sen Bazuru, which is Small Steps to Hope, Healing, and Happiness, um, and, and different ways that we can share talks like this, have conversations. Uh, we have our podcast, which is called The Quiet Life. All of these points are really just advocates or advocacies for community and, and hopefully gently guiding the conversation towards something more mindful in the real world and in our everyday lives. So that, uh, that is quite a few projects and it, it sounds like you have them all structured and laid out in, in a well-organized pattern. 
And again, you have a team around you. You are part of a team that each person is instrumental in making this happen. And that actually, that brings me on to my next point. And, you know, I'd usually ask about your USP or unique selling point. Uh, but the conversations we've had, I, I want to change that question slightly. And I, I want to ask you rather than your unique selling point, what what gives you the the ability, the energy, I think is the, the right word, to step up and in some case take charge of these projects, in other cases um, be a, a guiding light in the projects? How, how do you get up in the morning and go, right, this is what I need to do, this is how I'm going to do it, and this is where we're going with it? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying this and the kindness of, of, of your words to, to the work that I do and that we do. I think, as I said earlier, you know, I was always, um, my parents were always advocates of team sports. And so I've always brought that into my work, my business, um, our projects that, you know, we're always better together. And yeah, sure, while I tend to lead at the front uh, with a lot of our projects or lead from behind, a lot of the projects, uh, it's ensuring that everyone has a place where they can feel a part of something, that they can be instrumental in how it all comes together. And so we do have a great team of people who work within our projects and volunteers who uh, donate their time or teachers who are part of a wider network or friends like yourself who are part of a wider community. And, you know, it's um, it goes back to the, our earlier kind of thought uh, about, you know, there's passion which I think lots of us have passion. Um, there's purpose, which helps us turn that passion into action, right? And this is the work that I want to do. But I also think there's an element of capacity, which uh, is both vital to ensuring the progress of the work we're doing, the project we're doing. And, and I think there is a tendency to recognize or to have self-awareness on what we're personally capable of, um, I was listening recently to an interview podcast with um, uh, where a host was interviewing Megan Rapino, the um, you know women's American uh, soccer uh, star or a player, and she was talking about this idea that some people just know they're built to hold the level of scrutiny or detail or advocacy. To, to move things forward. And I think we all have that within us, but we also can recognize what we're capable of. And I think, you know, over my lifetime with the upbringing I've had, the jobs that I've had, the projects I've been a part of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable and capable knowing what I can do and what I can't do. And what I can do is figure out a way in which we can find a place of belonging, but also that uh, we have a team that I'm capable of working with that can make things into reality, tangible, that can give people a sense of easy digestion. Right? And I've always been an advocate of make things really simple because the simpler it is, the more people understand it, the more people understand it, the more people appreciate it. And the more people appreciate it, the more people that are willing to have an experience and then share it. And so my work across the board is about how do we build and celebrate community? How do we open doors and make things more accessible? I've done my years and hours of study, of learning, sitting with teachers and gurus and monks, 
that doesn't need to be you. You don't need to spend 20 years in study. I'm happy to be a translator. I'm happy to be a facilitator. I'm happy to help fast track a certain level of wisdom into everyday usage, right? And, you know, this, this to me is the role of a teacher, of a coach, of a parent to do some of the hard yards, understand their capacity and their capabilities, and to use that as a way to support communities, support people, as opposed to take that wealth of knowledge and instigate opportunity. And I think where it served me well is it, it always comes from this place that as teachers um, and as yogis and as meditators, everything comes from a place of service. How can I be of service? How can I help? Right. The same way as you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at your brothers and sisters and best friends and say, how can I monetize you? How can I um, get return from you? How can I uh, set up an arrangement where it's valuable for me? No. How can I be helpful? How can I be here to, to help you? What can I do to make your path a little less resistant than mine? How can I save you time? Because the world's a lot busier now than it was 20 years ago. And if we come at it from that ethos, or I've come at it from that ethos, and um, it's just served well to the impact of what we are continually trying to do with our projects, uh, help support people, support their health and well-being, and to support a sense of community. Amazing. And, and again, we, we circle back to community and, and being of service to the community that you're in. It's been great having you listen to Michael's experience, and it would mean a load if you followed the podcast and gave us a rating. Five stars are always welcome. This is the final episode in the first season, but we will be back soon with season two. If you follow the podcast or are a subscriber, you'll know first when season two, episode one comes out. So if not, follow now. Thank you for being a part of this journey with me. Now, back to the podcast. We're going to move on to the final part of our conversation, which is the future of the industry, the, the future of health and fitness. And again, it's very difficult to say with any certainty how it's going to look considering the past year and a bit. And this is just more about how you feel and, and again, your experience. But where do you see the industry? Where do you see you? Where do you see your projects moving in the next year, two, three years? What do you think will be the vision and the landscape? I mean, I, I wish I had a crystal ball and I knew I knew what was coming up. I mean, I, I, I tend to focus all of my work and our business and our projects on the now. Obviously, there's an element of planning we look ahead for, but how can we be the most impactful now? And as we evolve, as we go six months from now, 12 months from now, I'm going to still ask that same question to myself and to our team. How can we be impactful right now? I think in the landscape of health and wellness, I think um, in a really good way, even though it's come from the pandemic, is that there's going to be a larger focus and priority on health and well-being, on mental health, on physical exercise. I think all of these things that potentially have been part of um, fringe benefits or added value have become essential well-being or essential um, support. And I think, um, you know, what the pandemic has done has maybe fast-tracked us probably a good five to 10 years on the importance of health and well-being 
as a core proposition to our lifestyles. And what's really great by that is that it's, it's opening so much more access and availability and awareness to people who might not normally be interested or be looking this way. You and I are different. A lot of our friends are different in the sense of it's part of our world already, you know, but I can also walk around an office building. I can walk through the airport and I can still identify, you know, 80%, 85% of the people who have never been to a yoga class, who probably haven't gone for a run lately, who uh, don't have um, a mindfulness app in their pocket. And it's not that they're against it. There's just no awareness there. But now, because it's become part of a central narrative to the mainstream, you know, brands, businesses, organizations are all making that a central focus of the future, which is great. And so... I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens, to seeing all the new things that pop up, all the new organizations, the new companies, the new events, the new digital products, all these things. Well, there's a lot of chatter about saying, oh, well, is there too much digital? Is there not enough this? Are they overcrowding this? It's a bit for me. There's no such thing as too much focus on health and well-being. And whatever connects to you, go to that. You know, you don't, we don't need clear winners. We just need everyone to participate. And when people participate in their own health and well-being, whether it's going for a run, changing their diet, sitting down for meditation, you know, journaling, whatever it is, if it's more than what they were doing yesterday and that more is actually creating less, then we're moving in the right direction. And I would be happy to see that in however it comes to life over the next one, two, five, ten years. Well, we can only hope that uh, that your projection is it comes to fruition in some way. Now, I always end off with a question, and and for me, this is this is pretty important. Um, you know, the health, fitness, and wellness industry can be a lonely place when you start out, and if you don't build up a good solid network of other coaches and trainers and leaders and business people that can help support you. So you've been around for quite some time. You must know two or three trainers or coaches or or business people or, or leaders in the community who you think our listeners would be interested in finding out more about that you think that they're doing great work and that you want to share with the community, these people? I think it's really important to not only surround yourself with people who are like-minded, but to have these North Stars. Um, It doesn't have to be people, organizations, studios, places that are doing it in a meaningful way that uh, have their arms open and their doors open. Um, You know, a few people to recognize, and this kind of goes to show with the narrative of where things are, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a friend named Dustin Brown, who I met four or five years ago. We did a, a big Wanderlust Festival tour together in Australia, New Zealand. Um, he has now become the, the face of Apple Fitness for yoga, or one of them. And, you know, through our friendship, watching him as a, an amazing teacher, owns two or three studios in Australia, um, now has become a very central advocate of the practice worldwide and obviously now has a huge support mechanism behind him is, is 
is such an authentic person who is really going to change the narrative of how yoga is received in the West moving forward. One of the key people. And so I'd say, you know, check him out. He's fairly easy to find now. He's a bit everywhere. You know, I suppose when you work with organizations like that, they're a bit everywhere. Um, and, 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 you know, on a global scale, he's someone who's really doing great work and, and someone who's really coming at it from a place of meaning and, and value. On a local level, I'm, again, as I said, I'm based in London. I mean, one of the things I'd like to shout out is every single studio coming back, staying on their feet, keeping going. Um, you know, right now, as things open back up, there's a huge need to support the live environments. You know, if you can go to studio, you're comfortable going to a studio, go to a studio, take a friend. These are the places that have created communities. These are the places that are safe havens. These are the sacred spaces that allow people to feel that they can escape from moments of chaos in their normal lives. And now more than ever, they need support from people to just go and to show up. Um, whether it's your first time ever going to a yoga class or a Pilates class or a HIT class, you don't need to be a pro to go. You just need to show up and say, I'm just here to participate. I'm here to support because just simply by showing up is support that helps these organizations and businesses get back on their feet. Um, so there's a lot of, of wonderful studios all around London, all around the world. That, that really needs your support. And again, um, you know, uh, I, I am a massive advocate of anything that supports community, that grows community, that builds community. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to supporting and, and not needing to be this, the, the, the central leadership and can actually actively just be support as people go and grow towards their own purposes and, 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 and their own communities. That is so helpful. Thank you. And Michael, really appreciate your time, your knowledge and your input. It's clear that you have found your passion, you have a clear vision of what you want to achieve, and how you're planning to build your communities. And sharing that with us, the, the listeners, it's absolutely awesome so thank you again for your time what we will do is we're going to put some of your links into the show notes below so if people are interested in linking up with you uh, linking up with darren or any of the projects that you've got going on they'll be able to find that information in the show notes below wonderful thanks coach absolute pleasure have a great day and uh, we'll speak soon bye for now